It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. And on this week's podcast, we discuss the magic Tory money tree. Labour's latest trigger ballot rows. And you ask us, would the Tories have an electoral coalition in moving to the left economically, but staying on the cultural right? So Anoush, it's been a, I was about to say a wild week in the Conservative leadership election, which I've feel isn't really true because it's actually been an incredibly dull week in the Conservative leadership election in terms of the outcome but it's been quite an interesting week and I think in terms of various political and positioning choices they have made slash semi-made by accident so Jeremy Hunt has decided that actually no deal is fine and dandy and that he would make six billion pounds available to fishermen and farmers and slash corporation tax, whether we have a deal or not. Yeah. And this is all part of him. It's sort of the no-deal arms race now, isn't it? Because he obviously got spooked by the Boris Johnson do-or-die on October the 31st week mm. and decided that he then had to say, OK, yeah, we're going to leave without a deal unless I see a deal being possible by the end of September, is it? Something like yeah. that. Something bizarre. And and he's had to say, oh, with a heavy heart, I'd let British businesses go bust if, if, it, if it meant that we could get no deal, which really jars with everything that he's been saying so far about how he was an entrepreneur and that he understands business. Um, clearly not. So that's the predictable part of the campaign. I think the part that's actually more interesting, because we know that they're trying to play to the same very small electorate, two thirds of whom have no deal Brexit as their most desired outcome of Brexit. So we kind of know why he's doing that, whether or not it's wise. But they've also been bringing out their sort of economic policies as well. I think that's really interesting because they're both trying to distance themselves from austerity by saying that they're sort of going to turn the taps back on funding. Boris Johnson with £5 billion a year for education, infrastructure spending, borrowing for infrastructure, more police, and then Jeremy Hunt wants to spend more on on defence. So this is really funny because suddenly, magically, there's loads of money to spend. And they're both sort of relying on this fund that that Philip Hammond has, the the so-called no-deal war chest, which is £25 billion worth of headroom. That's actually just borrowed money earmarked for a no-deal disaster. So how you can say that you want to spend it on education doesn't really make sense. So that's got a lot of Labour MPs amused because the magic money tree that they're always accused of growing for the purposes of their manifesto is now being mined by the Conservative leadership candidates. 
Yeah, I think it's odd because there are loads and loads of ways that you could if you if the next prime minister wanted to spend more money. There was an interesting proposal by Onward about ways they could tweak their fiscal rule. Where I thought actually part of the cleverness of that is it would have allowed them to it would allow them to spend a lot more money while maintaining the idea that there is a dividing line between a fiscally responsible conservative party and an irresponsible labor party by saying well we won't target debt falling as a proportion of GDP we'll just have it flat or falling which unlocks quite a lot of extra headroom in terms of the amount you can borrow mm-hmm. I, the thing I think is, has been quite surprisingly destructive on Jeremy Hunt's part this week is him saying things like if we can bail out the bankers we can bail out farmers and fishermen it's just like one of those things where it's just like we almost wanted to tap on the shoulder and go Jeremy you understand that video footage you know doesn't just vanish magically on the 22nd of July <laughs> like the the Labour Party I mean John McDonnell already has you know when presented with the world's most simple political uh polit- yeah when when Jeremy Hunt sent a message saying hey John would you like to have this stick to beat me with <laughs> obviously replied by yeah of course has already gone oh right so you've admitted that the the argument for austerity is, is on shaky ground. Yeah, yeah. Because I kind of think, and um, we'll talk about a bit, this bit in the next section, that the, there being money to spend suddenly, I think is kind of fine for the Conservative Party because their original promise was it'll hurt for a ha- half a decade and then it'll be fine. Because it's hurt for longer than half a decade, because they can nominally go, oh, we've, you know, we've achieved our, our aim of closing the structural deficit, et cetera, et cetera. I think politically, actually, the, it, it's quite easy to style out the transition from we have to have these cuts to I'm making it rain, you know, you get a car, you get a car, you get a tax cut. <laughs> the danger is, is I think actually the way they're doing it is quite risky to them because what they, what they need, I think, ideally, is a position where they can defend the idea of austerity but not be doing it anymore. So Jeremy Hunt is now in a position where if he were to become leader of the Conservative Party, which I don't think is likely, but mm. let's give it some headroom, he would be the candidate saying, we've got to listen to business about Jeremy Corbyn, but I'm, I'm willing with a heavy heart to let it go to the wall. I'm the one who people who vote for the Brexit Party don't trust, but I've adopted a policy on Brexit that people who are now voting for the Lib Dems strongly oppose. Like, who is he the candidate for? Yeah. Like, I just, I just don't understand like what he believes his political coalition in either the Tory party or the country is at this point. Yeah, it's really foolish. You can't really out Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson, really on on No Deal because um, he's been the one who's been much bolder about making ridiculous claims about No Deal from the start. And Jeremy Hunt has said already that the thirty first of October is like a false deadline, and he's been way more cautious up until this week. So it does. Not only is it unwise from a his coalition of voters perspective but it's also unwise in terms of authenticity like it just doesn't fly I don't think that the Tory membership are going to necessarily find it particularly convincing and then in terms of the idea of moving away from austerity but still defending it neither of them have done that particularly successfully Jeremy Hunt quite early on was saying I regret the amount of social care cuts I saw beds and beds in hospitals filled with people who couldn't go back into the community because of the lack of social care provision while he was health secretary. I mean, it's quite bizarre to to slam your own record like that and also to undermine the government that you've served in economic policy in such a sweeping way. I do agree that they need to have a sort of political justification for austerity while they move away from it, and neither of them have done that successfully. So the interesting thing actually about their deal positions, right, is... Obviously, the kind of unspoken sort of possibility that we have to entertain is that there will be an election 
later on this year, which I go wildly back and forth, sometimes within the same minute, about whether or not it will actually happen. <laughs> I think the interesting thing is the way that a bunch of Labour MPs have started to now say, you know, having had three opportunities to vote for it, I, I really feel I could vote for it on opportunity four. And I don't doubt that they believe themselves to be sincere. But, of course, the really significant thing is now that essentially neither of the Conservative candidates is really saying they're going to bring it back. Yeah, exactly. Um, they are both saying they will seek changes to the backstop of a nature that are not going to be forthcoming. Right? So, of course, that does make it easier if you're a Labour MP to say, actually, I would now vote for it if, uh, if you feel you, you, you may not be asked to do so. I think in an odd way, the worst, the worst position for them politically is one in which... They go into an election this year having basically said, God, the public realm is in a mess, having done nothing to fix the public realm and slagged off the idea of austerity. Yeah. Yeah. Makes no sense. So we discussed deselection a bit in the last podcast and there's been an update on that story in the Labour Party, hasn't there? So Stephen, why don't you tell us what's what's happened? Yeah. Oh, so firstly, I realised from two emails we got that there was clearly some slight confusion about the, the, the rules change and I didn't explain it properly. You now need to get two thirds of both your party branches and your affiliate branches. You can no longer get through by only having a majority of both which means you can no longer game the system by adding loads of loyal affiliate branches to, to get you out of trouble, which is, of course, the really uh, important thing. Okay, change. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the, I was about to say the interesting. <laughs> I mean, actually, I, I think the, the really interesting thing about this story is it's not that interesting. So uh, there is a story that has been picked up by a couple of places and was originally broken on Politics Home that some Labour MPs are circling the wagons over, which is that Ellie Reeves, the Labour MP for Lewisham West and Penge, one of her members has called for her to face a no-confidence motion and for for the trigger ballot process to be begun because of her support for a letter saying Chris Williamson should have the whip withdrawn. And this has been publicly condemned by broadly what I guess you would probably call Labour's old right or mm. it's like former, like, you know, bullseye yeah. con- contingency. Okay. And... Almost everyone else has been quite quiet about it. Now, the reason why I think that there's a lot in this story is, like, to be honest, it is one letter, right? It's it's one one letter. One letter is not a third of all branches, let alone... Because obviously, to get rid of an MP, you've got to clear two hurdles. You've firstly got to have a third of branches to vote against uh, re-adopting them. And then, of course, you need 50% of the overall membership plus one. Now, because the branches are not weighted by membership, they are pure, you know, like if there are 10 branches in a constituency and, and most of the members live in four of them, it doesn't matter. They all count the same. So that, of course, can mean that you can have a situation where someone would certainly lose a full selection. And there are several MPs who believe they certainly would lose a full selection, but who are not going to be triggered because of where the balance of their membership actually lives. The important thing is, is ultimately, like, this is not an example of a of something which may actually lead to deselection. That is one of the reasons why so few MPs have decided to assert themselves, because there's a, essentially a split in the Labour Party about, you know, a fairly minor split giving splits in the Labour Party, about how to deal with this time of trigger ballots. Mm. Some people basically think you need to circle the wagons and any kind of public story about deselection, you know, kind of need to go, oh, you know, this is awful, our great movement of ours, we need to be a big happy family. 
And some people basically think that the way that they will get through this is by being fairly quiet, through trying to, you know, just essentially keep their heads down and to organise locally but quite quietly and believe that, that essentially as long as the salience of PLP versus activists or PLP versus Corbyn is kept low, they will be elected fine. The interesting thing is we just don't really know A, which one of those will work, but B, whether or not you actually can successfully maintain the don't raise the saliency. Mm. Because I think the fact that this story has now been picked up by The Guardian, it's been picked up by a couple of other outlets. Now, yeah, of course, actually, like, you know, most Labour members are nowhere near as politically active or engaged as people who listen to this podcast or, you know... However, what would worry me if I were in the we just need to lower the salience, say some nice things about socialism and it will be fine tendency is this is going to play out over a summer in which there is going to be not very much other than go back to Brussels and renegotiate the backstop is I think even if and a lot of MPs think and a lot of MPs and a lot of organisers on both sides of the factional divide believe that actually this will in the end be not much will actually be much less transformative than people think. They think a fair number of people will get triggered because it's ultimately only a third, but most of those people will very comfortably win reselection. And a lot of MPs are essentially treating their trigger process as a data-gathering exercise for winning that, uh, that yeah. reselection. Now, that, that may or may not be true. However, if your approach to that being true as an MP is just decrease the saliency of PLP versus Corbyn, you have this big problem that the media is going to hugely increase the saliency of PLP versus Corbyn, because that is a more sexy story. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the sad thing about this story is that, you know, for all of time, you've had people in in local parties, for all parties, who will be unhappy with their MP and be, you know, constantly challenging them and writing to their party chair. And I mean, I don't know who the person is who wrote this letter, but I mean, any reporting that, that I've done over the past you know, seven or so years, you know, you'll always find a crank or two at a local, in a local party who's who's happy to write letters like that and make a nuisance of themselves. But now that kind of letter has so much, has so much resonance because MPs, MPs do feel, lots of them feel sort of even fearful of their, of their local parties. And, and that suggests that the tone of local politics is, is so toxic now that even if one letter can cause that reaction, that says enough about the situation that MPs are in to take it seriously, if you see what I mean. Because, you know, someone could have got that letter a few years ago before before the sort of Corbyn times and the divided politics that we have now because of the because of the referendum. And it wouldn't have mattered. But now, because everyone feels so precarious, it's it's something that MPs feel the need to condemn. And that's really sad. I also think, right, there is this weirdness that no one really knows how Labour's rule change is going to work in practice. But the one thing we do know is that the old rule change rules in practice meant you could not be deselected unless yeah. you were actively incompetent, actively had annoyed your local party and the various local affiliates all decided to gang up on you. Now, I was about to say you can construct an argument and that's fine. I, to be honest, don't really think you can. I think one of the problems, that, yeah, the kind of time bomb under the Parliamentary Labour Party has always been that the previous trigger ballot system was very hard to defend. Yeah. And then because no one had thought seriously about, well, if you if you had a system when you could defend, what would it be? Which means then essentially you have a change which, when it happened, lots of people thought, oh, this is great for us. Yeah, people wanted to get rid of MPs. Because essentially 
if you can't pass this threshold, you're probably going to lose the, the selection. So it's as painless as this experience can possibly be. I think the fear a lot of people now have is that actually the barrier to triggering might now have gone the other way. It might be too low. Mm. And so you end up with a very poisonous summer, you know, bad atmosphere, going into an autumn election, etc., etc. But at the end of it, you've actually failed to change the makeup of the PLP all that much. Because the, the, one of the reasons why MPs are so stressed is right is the party that they are getting reselected by is completely different to the party than they were selected by, even if you were selected the first time in 2015. Yeah. The flip side is that party, even though it, membership is down from its peak, is still really quite large. It's really expensive to get selected anyway. This is going to be a really expensive event in the life of people who usually give money to the Labour Party in the run-up to an election. And it might be that actually a lot of that money ends up being wasted because the, the person is, is the same as, as they were at the end of it. Mm. But yeah, I think it is partly about our divided politics. But I do also, you know, as I said last week, I do think there is this, this slight thing that because of the way the rules existed before and because there is no institutional culture in the other parties of the idea that reselecting an MP is a good idea in of itself... Although it's much easier to get rid of your sitting Lib Dem MP, there is no tendency within the Lib Dems that believes that you ought to have a full selection just because. Whereas there are people across the right, the left and the middle of the Labour Party who believe that a fresh selection is a good in of itself. I do, to be honest, have a fair amount of sympathy for the idea that, that you should have a sort of fully open uh, process. But um, understandably, that makes Labour MPs quite nervous. Whereas with the Conservatives, weirdly, it's always personal if you get deselected. It can be ideologically personal, it can be personal because mm. you're rubbish. But there is no, other than a very eccentric few, when you speak to Conservative members, there is not a large group of people who think that there ought to be a full selection just because of it. Yeah, no, exactly. And and, and the reason why I suppose Labour MPs are in a slightly different situation, although there have been accusations of entryism in the Conservative associations, is that it wouldn't be personal, it would be ideological which is bad for the party in terms of its broad church and its history and and its sort of brand yeah i also think the weird thing is is that um if you're a labor mp who thinks you're going to be deselected because your party has changed ideologically people don't like being in a situation where they can't control that where they basically can't control or improve their political situation very easily if you just have organised things as people from Leave.eu losing joining your your local Conservative Association, there are many more organisational things you can do, or you can do what a number of Conservative MPs have started to do, which is to basically go, "Well, I've always thought No Deal was brilliant." Anyway, <laughs> have you? Um, but of course, I mean, this it may of course be that the group of MPs who basically think, "Look, we just keep our heads down, we just say, you know, trigger ballot is what the trigger ballot is. It's always been, and we'll be fine. We'll be proved right." My instinct is they have a better chance than lots of people think. But I do think, yeah, this this does really... Sh the really important thing this shows is that if your plan to manage your trigger ballot process as an MP was let's have this be as non-dramatic a, a time in the Labour Party as possible, the bad news for you is that, ironically, people who you are more ideologically close to than the people who you were hoping to win over are probably going to ruin that for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. And this week's question is, imagine for a moment that the Conservative Party moves to the, to the left on economics, but continues its cultural positioning on Brexit, immigration, crime, I guess. Could that party win an election? And who's the question from? The question is from several people on Twitter, actually, but I've managed to once again lose the question. Note taker, note underscore taker on Twitter. Okay, so, you so don't it's going to be noted down, whatever you, don't, you say. You, yeah, you don't even have to have a, you know, a Twitter account. You can, you, know, if you, can, you can email, tweet, or Facebook us entirely anonymously, and we will still take your question, provided it is not libellious or slanderous, I guess. Yeah. So I thought about this question when I saw it, and um, it sort of reminded me of when UKIP were on the up um, a few years ago. Remember when they sort of spooked David Cameron into even wanting to call the referendum in the first place. There was a lot of writing about the division between red UKIP and blue UKIP because there was this contingent in UKIP who were promising more money for the NHS and saying quite left-wing things on the economy in contrast with how the sort of original party used to set itself up as in favour of privatisation and small state economics. And that kind of divided the party and obviously UKIP is a mess of factions anyway but it really didn't work for them in terms of their their organisation and their um, ideological purity and I think that would be the same for the Conservative Party. Even if the leadership of the Conservative Party wanted to move more more leftwards on the economy, how would they ever get any of those policies through Parliament? I just don't think there's enough Conservative MPs who would want the party to move in that direction. So I think in terms of organisation and actual sort of practicality, it wouldn't work for the Conservative Party. Could the Conservative Party theoretically pick up more votes and retain its existing coalition with a sort of more... You know, slightly more state spending, but by retaining or it's you know more authoritarian pro-Brexit position, probably. Although, I think in general, right, the important thing that everyone kind of forgets whenever someone says, "Why doesn't the Conservative Party just become a party of Brexit? Why doesn't the Labour Party just become a party of Remain?" is, or indeed vice versa, right? Is this idea that you have like a Leave vote made up of people who are left behind economically? or you have a Remain vote of people who are doing fine, is just not true, right? Mm -hmm. Actually, like, broadly, Labour Remainers and Labour Leavers have more in common in terms of what they want out of the economy, and indeed their actual economic condition, than they do with Leavers or Remainers of either type. Mm -hmm. So it's quite hard to get a parliamentary majority for either side with an approach of just building out on your Remain or your Leave flank. Because you're basically, it's kind of like the problem the Lib Dems had before when when the coalition was still exerting a more powerful electoral tax, right? Because only half of the voters uh, were willing to consider voting for them because of the coalition. But only half of voters voted to remain and only half of remain voters had thought the referendum should be re-fought. They were actually going for half of the half of the half of the half. And basically, I'm not convinced that the approach of 
become a bit more left economically, stick with Brexit and the broader cultural perspective, actually adds up to 325 seats. But in many ways, the more important question, I think, is actually your point about could you get the Conservative Party as it... Yeah, and this, again, is, is missing from Labour's Brexit debate, right? It's very easy to have, for people to have loads and loads of arguments about what position Labour should have. However, an equally important argument, if you are sitting in Jeremy Corbyn's office, is what is the position that a Clause 5 meeting, the meeting where it sets the manifesto, or Labour conference is going to agree to? Because, broadly, your, your political strategy has to be based around winning support for for that actual policy. Now, of course, sometimes you can take that approach too far. Nick Clegg in 2010 being the er example, right? He didn't think that the tuition fee policy was a good idea. He didn't think that their costings for it worked. When he lost the vote at Lib Dem conference to take it out of the manifesto, he then went, well, I guess we'll make it the centerpiece of our election campaign, which was obviously a very foolish thing to do. But yeah, I, I kind of, I don't really buy that they could get it through this parliament even allowing for the fact that hung parliaments love, you know, spending things and not raising taxes. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think they'd struggle. But then in terms of actually appealing, I don't know if they could win an election. Say theoretically they managed to get this stuff through their MPs. Could they theoretically win an election having moved more to the left on economics? I actually think they've got way more room than than we than we think. Because even when I've gone reporting in places like, well, like Theresa May's seat, Maidenhead, which isn't... A, which isn't a leave voting seat, but it's not sort of heavy, heavily remain either. You know, even conservative councillors have, well, especially conservative councillors have noticed the impact of, of nine years of austerity. So I do think that more spending is not necessarily the sort of Labour bogeyman that lots of the conservative grassroots used to think it is because they've seen for themselves you know they've experienced potholes on the road and they've seen homeless people and you know they probably have people in their family who have struggled to get the care that they need uh, or they've seen the hospital in crisis because that's what everyone sees um, regardless of your demographic so I do think that they probably have quite a lot of wiggle room in terms of their voters and their grassroots but it's just MPs are so tribal and so so ideological sometimes that I think that I just can't imagine I just can't imagine a majority for them moving to the left on the economy in this parliament yeah I think particularly because this parliament is particularly finely balanced yeah you only need Philip Hammond and two other people who are economically dry don't like Boris Johnson don't think they have a future in the Conservative Party anyway to go well no I'm not voting for it I think so the the other sort of interesting point in all of this right so we were also asked uh, by, by in this question, you know, you know, like how how would would Labour how could Labour respond to that happening? I mean, I think the weird thing is actually, if you look at Labour's sort of economic and cultural positioning, there has been far less resistance both to Jeremy Corbyn, but actually throughout the Labour Party's history, right? If you actually look at the the content of Labour's 1997 manifesto and messaging. Two, like, you know, the problem with austerity is we don't hire enough border cards. Mm. Like, you know, like there has been very little resistance to that. And it seems to me to be a lot easier for Labour to move into that position without large bits of its coalition and large important internal actors within the Labour Party kicking off. Yeah. You can find plenty of people, MPs, trade unions, activists, who will roll their eyes at the, the problem with austerity is, you know, we need to have more border guards. But it's quite rare to find people in the Labour Party who are willing to upset the whole apple cart in order to get rid of 
the problem with austerity is we don't hire enough border guards. Whereas it's quite easy to find conservatives who are willing to upset the apple cart if it's not reducing debt as a share of GDP. Exactly. Um, the question, though, is, I don't know about you, but it feels that both, you know, when you're out in the country reporting, when people write in about, you know, Corbyn, when you, you know, do a panel show or two, like, one of the more interesting zombie beliefs about Jeremy Corbyn is that he is like some, like, culture warrior, identity-based, like, new, capital N, lefty, mm. when he just palpably isn't. Like, if you actually look at the things he actually believes and actually says, Jeremy Corbyn is not a man who, you know, like, who, you know, like this, this idea that Jeremy Corbyn is, is obsessed with, with issues of identity is just not true. Yeah. Yeah, you'll get so many sort of people who don't really understand that saying things, saying things about Jeremy Corbyn, you know, like joking about the fact that he's a vegan and, oh, you know, the snowflakes love their magic grandpa or whatever they like to call him. And that, I think, is a complete misreading of Jeremy Corbyn. So I agree with that. Yeah. But the, I think the interesting thing about that, right, is for a lot of people on both sides of the kind of Remain Leave, whether you think Remain Leave is actually what the divide is or if just Remain Leave happens to map pretty well onto it but the interesting thing is is a lot of people on either side of that cultural divide perceive jeremy corbyn to be one of the remain guys yeah which i think is why a large chunk of people who now swear blind that they voted labor to stop brexit when the labor party was very much not in 2017 saying it would stop brexit and jeremy corbyn had won not one but two labor leadership elections on a platform of either saying he was open to the idea of a leave vote and then saying he wanted to accept the result is he's he's coded as it were yes. as a, a pro remain politician and i also think that is probably why so many people have invested their hope in Yvette cooper or other people who are not actually advocating a second referendum the flip side of that is precisely because then it partly seems to be about how people perceive someone on that wider, like, social liberalism versus not social liberalism divide. Is where that gets you is actually where the Labour Party is probably its most electorally effective is if it could get someone like Andy MacDonald to be leader, who sounds and I think is coded to a lot of people as someone in the like the more levy end of the shadow mm, cabinet yeah. but actually is someone who goes on and goes no deal means the end of steel I think maybe we should have a reference you know like can you expand your coalition simply by having somewhat a different uh, leader who has the same policy offer but is coded differently to a different bit of the electorate because I think if the answer to that is yes the perverse thing is is the conservatives actually I think have more options to do that right they have more people who are coded as remain or coded as leave but who could go the other way mm. of course the weird thing is is that they don't want to so in many ways they're in exactly the same position as the labor party it doesn't matter that it's hard to find someone this theoretical candidate who's like coded as leave but could do remain things for the labor party the labor membership doesn't want to so it's kind of a bit redundant the conservative party doesn't want to and i just feel like that does feel like the biggest problem with the could a party win by doing this is you have to be able to take your party with you. Yeah, exactly. Although I would say that actually I think Jeremy Corbyn has so far benefited from being someone who's coded as as a Remainer because he, he is someone that a lot of his membership sort of project whatever they want, whatever they believe onto him, even even though he hasn't said half the things that they would have liked him to say. And, you know, that showed, and when he was challenged by Owen Smith, it showed in that result, because Owen Smith went into that election saying that he wanted a second referendum before it was cool, and everyone just voted for Jeremy Corbyn again, and, and you know, 
that was because they they felt that he he's someone who represents their values even if he hasn't specifically said the things about Brexit that they would like him to say so he's sort of benefited from having this aura of like I'm left-wing and cool and young and I understand about not young but you know I understand the young people's interests and values and I spoke at Glastonbury etc but actually on paper lots of that stuff isn't really true well it is why I think that Jeremy Corbyn was a net and I emphasise the word net because I feel every time I make this point, someone appears via email to send me a long patronising email going, but what about this group of people mm. uh, who he, he was repellent to? Yeah. That's why I think Jeremy Corbyn was a net electoral asset to the Labour Party in the, in the 2017 election because he was coded as Remain. Yeah. He had an unambiguously leave position and he could get away with that position. Yeah. I think part of the Labour Party's problem is that that position at the moment does not look to be electorally lucrative. Mm. It may be, as I say in my cover story, then then Boris Johnson becoming leader fixes that and makes it electorally lucrative again. However, if an electorally lucrative position does not exist, then you suddenly end up in a position where it's basically going, so you can have two bad things happen to your electoral coalition. Would you like option A or would you like option B? And because Labour is divided as to what the right thing is to do, they just sit here having this attritional argument about what the most electorally efficient way to punch themselves in the face are. <laughs> uh, but I think, yeah, it obviously was, a, 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 I think, a, a benefit to him that he was coded as Remain. The, the difficulty now is that he's, I think, still coded as Remain for a lot of Leave voters but he is not coded as Remain for a lot of Remain voters. Yeah. Even though actually, like, their position has become increasingly pro-second referendum, right? He's now saying in the chamber, it's time for a public vote, etc., etc. Yeah, it's interesting that the people who are hearing that message are the Leave voters rather yeah. than the Remain voters that it's aimed at. Yeah, and I think that the kind of the combination of qualities which made him a net asset last time might now make him a net this benefit at the moment although of course all of this comes with the really important caveat that we don't yet know and won't really know until you know the experiment is actually wired into the computer and and the election happens what the effect of the fact that conservatives are about to very strongly intensify their own like i mean they really are going full on to the we are coded as the brexit people brand now that could work it could end up being quite humiliating. And I think the weird thing at the moment is it feels to me that one of the political parties, maybe both, is going to look very stupid after the next election. However, it's not wholly clear to me that they actually do have a better strategy available than the ones they've opted to have. Mm. I think that about Labour. I mean, every time someone says to me, oh, why, you know, they're sitting on the fence, why didn't they do this, why didn't they do that? On both sides of the argument, I understand the frustration, but I really don't know what I would have done differently. And like every inch towards a second referendum, I've always felt instinctively was really risky. And you can tell from the way that they've kind of been dragged kicking and screaming into that position that they that they feel that. And, you know, even pollsters, like no one really knows what the most electorally beneficial sort of Brexit position actually is. And it does depend a lot on who he's up against. So if it's going to be Boris Johnson, that that could really help because it makes it sort of black and white. But it could also make people really disillusioned because choosing between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, a lot of people won't like those those two options as their only real choice. It's one of those odd things where 
I realised, someone said, oh, what would you do? I realised, because I spend so much time going, well, look, you have this group, which one's that? You have this group, which one's that? Then I ha haven't properly sat down and gone, well, what would I have done in this terrifying hypothetical universe in which I had uh, Seamus Milne's job? Yeah. I kind of think, in a way, and it's very easy to say with hindsight, you've kind of, then they've got to free, free themselves from this idea that the whole of the Labour Party is locked into, that their Brexit policy can primarily be seen as an electoral one. Mm -hmm. They have to work out what it is they want out of it. The difficulty is, is that's actually not a helpful answer because, again, you end up with this situation where if you ask the Labour Party what it wants out of the Brexit process, you get eight different answers. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague Anusha Kelly. It's recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. Apologies for the sound quality last week. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Mm -hmm.